Hey Rockville, this is Susan and I'm here in the garage by myself tonight. Jamie's recovering from snow tubing and Andrea has a sick little one. You've probably heard that the recreational use of marijuana will be legal in the state of Maryland starting July 1 and we're wondering how do we make the transition from prohibition to legalization smoothly as a community? To help us sort this out, we're talking to Matt Perkins, a criminologist who specializes in community-based crime reduction efforts and advocates for resident-based crime prevention. Matt is the chair of the Community Policing Advisory Board and lives in Twinbrook with his wife, Deepa. This is Matt's second time with us. We had some technical difficulties the last time, so we're giving him another shot. Hey, Matt, it's great to see you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Susan. Hey, Rockville. Glad to be back. Let's get it right this time. Uh, you did. You did that so well. I think you're you're gonna have a like a semi permanent uh, gig here if you're not careful. I can record your opener. Yes. Oh, that would be great. All right. Well, so Matt, tell us what's your story. How did you come to have a professional life at the intersection of justice, criminology, and community building? Yeah. Um, that's uh, not a. If I'll question, then I'll, I'll, I'll try and do it quickly. Um, so I was born in Montgomery County. Let's go with a deep backstory. Um, <clears throat> unlike many of my neighbors here, but immediately left. Grew up in Anne Arundel County. Um, went to Towson University for undergrad and uh, majored in history and really wanted to get my PhD in history after grad school. Had a baby at 22 with my wife and went to grad school ready to be Professor Matt. Uh, while in grad school, got a job interviewing people on the lockup in St. Louis City and was going to University of Missouri, St. Louis. Uh, working for a criminology professor who suggested I could switch to the field and thought for about two minutes that, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a job after getting a master's compared to no job after getting a PhD? <laughs> so went ahead and had a second child while I was in grad school, did my criminology program and, and started working almost immediately at the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, and got to move back to Montgomery County. And uh, how I got into kind of the community-based crime prevention uh, field is just thinking about how things could be done a little differently, less punitively, and being drawn to the work that was happening at community level. Uh, I was just in St. Louis last week, it was a nice bookend to this story, at a conference by the Department of Justice for a couple hundred practitioners of community violence intervention and community violence prevention efforts. It's, it's a big push by the current administration, but also one that I think addresses a lot of concerns we have about equity in policing and about you know it's a way to think about how do we address crime in a more comprehensive way especially since police departments can't seem to hire anybody right now and uh, so yeah i look forward to a lot more attention to that it's something i've been doing for about 25 years that's interesting what you say about police departments can't hire anybody right now so this is we're talking about the an undesirable profession at this moment in time. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, I think um, 
you know, for me, a big frustration in working with police over the past five years or more is the lack of leadership and, and voices of leadership at the national level from prominent chiefs of police saying, you know, our profession has to change in many ways, right? Not just with the use of police violence and, and more to the point how police violence, which when you see it is, is plainly disturbing um, at, at many levels is, um, if not downright criminal, I should add. Um, how it's not dealt with forthrightly and quickly. And um, yeah, I think people feel a sense that we all deserve more in the profession. It's a profession that I think is is caught in a time loop in many ways. It's, it's very hierarchical when our society is moving away from hierarchy. It's male dominated. I'll, I'll, when talking to chiefs occasionally, I'll just pose a question as a thought exercise. If, if you can't imagine your police department with half the employees being female, being women, you're not living in a modern workplace. Right? And, the, and the profession has not come to grips with many of the changes that need to be made. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, when we posted the first round with you, we did get some a question, and it doesn't have to do with the legalization of marijuana. Should we just, since we're talking about this right now, should we just jump into that question? Sure. Can I, uh, let me yeah. say one more thing just oh, sure. to kind of set the context. I, I think we have a, <clears throat> I feel in my profession, like I, I'm sure everybody thinks, or people think they know about what I do, but not really. And and I feel like I face a challenge in, in, in criminal justice and creating safe neighborhoods. We face a challenge of a really entrenched narrative that you watch on TV every day. Right, right. Before I met you and knew you were a criminologist, I, I had like a, a complete, um, you know, like SVU, you know, uh, Criminal Minds, oh, that kind of a cop show, you know, idea of what you did. And I imagine that's, that's pretty common. Yeah, I think, uh, well, you know, kind of simplistic solutions are always yeah. uh, easier to take or, or attractive to us. And, and probably the biggest is kind of this narrative of good people and bad people, right? Most of the people we would think of as good people routinely break the law, whether it's driving a little over the speed limit or maybe fudging on their taxes. Um, and when we think of people involved in violence, they're almost universally also victims of violence, right? So, right. so um, not to excuse what they do, but to develop a better understanding. And I think it's, it's helpful to think of types of safety issues and criminal justice issues as things that are created in part by policy decisions that we make. Um, and so we can't maybe get rid of all violence, but we can certainly do things differently and get rid of some. And, and I really feel right now that the system that we're engaged with has been defined and created almost entirely by the first responders who we think of automatically when we think of safety we think of police but imagine how much our how much different our health system would look if it was created by paramedics hmm. yeah it, it, it's interesting that makes me that gives some 
you know, we want to make teachers first responders, right? We want to make all these other people first responders, but perhaps that's, we need to turn that on its head. Yeah, and I think, um, well, for those who, who managed to sit there and listen to take one on this, um, if they made it through the quiet talking. Yeah, but you were a very engaging interview, oh, quiet or not. Right, I appreciate that, but it uh, took some effort. And oh, where was I going with this? Oh yeah, uh, teachers as first responders. I think one thing we're looking at now is the challenge of how do we engage neighborhoods and people who live in neighborhoods back into their, their jobs of citizenry. And um, you know that, that's a part of what I do uh, with my work is, is thinking about how do we catalyze people in the community and especially the nonprofit organizations and what's the infrastructure. I think it, for safety it's important, but all types of public life, it's important I think that we start getting to know each other and interacting with each other more. Absolutely agreed on that one. I could, we could talk about that a lot because there's so many policy areas where, where we could do better from how we design our neighborhoods to how we encourage interaction between neighbors. Well, here's, here's the question that was texted to Jamie. Um, does the Tyree Nichols incident show that policing itself and not necessarily not necessarily the race of the officers or local policing leads to gross incidents of police violence. If not, what does the RPD get right and what can we improve? Yeah, so um, <laughs> first of all, when you become a police officer, you become a police officer first and foremost. That's what I've seen throughout my career, regardless of your race. Um, I have a note not to say um so much, so I'm gonna try and stop there. <laughs> but this is a this is a deep question. Um, there it goes. I would say, and I this comes almost straight from Chief Frito's mouth. But in a department that has a bad culture and in which chiefs and high level officers don't administer enough oversight about little things then abuses like this can very easily happen and i agree with that very much there's probably in memphis a long culture of um, casual violence among some officers at least that is probably overlooked and maybe even encouraged in some ways and many departments would not accept that type of behavior and do not accept that type of behavior and respond quickly and definitively when, when abuses happen. But I will also say, like, our founding fathers were very aware of the corruptibility of power, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Constitution is essentially a document that says you can only do these few things and nothing else. Um, and then not being satisfied with that, there goes my history again. They created a list of rights that we have and, and we've added to it quite a bit. So we need to always be vigilant in oversight and checking ourselves and we've fallen far short of that in many ways. Um, 
it's routine for me that police agencies don't look at racial inequities in, in how they enforce the law. And if you look at statistics and find that there's disparities, say in traffic stops, that doesn't mean that it's because of racial animus among officers, but you need to be looking mm -hmm. for that. And if you find that answering the why, why are we finding that? And most departments do not want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the biggest frustration for me probably is in the complete abandonment and and when I think about this I'm thinking about the context of large cities in which I work complete abandonment by mayors city councils city managers in their oversight responsibilities towards law enforcement they they are for the most part at least cowed into not exercising vigorous management of police agencies and they don't do it because yeah. then they have deniability and things get worse. Mm. Do you think it's, do you think it's, uh, how much of it is deniability and how much of it is, there's so, we, we put so much positional authority and respect and we, we just see our policemen as, I don't know, not better, but as the highest authority. So how much of it is, I don't want to, I want deniability, and how much of it is just this natural cultural thing where we respect the police and we do what they say because they're in charge? Yeah, I think that's very much it. I don't, mm, though, maybe not so much because they're in charge, but we definitely, we have this hero complex of we ask people to do hard things, and policing is an incredibly difficult job. Right, right. right. That's a good way to say it. Um, Police are exposed to trauma on a daily basis. They have to deal with things that some of us can't even imagine and don't even consider, you know, if somebody gets in a car accident, a bad car accident on high speed and uh, wrecks with another car and their body is twisted and torn and where bodies weren't meant to be, who's showing up and who's seeing that? Um, I have a long story. Okay. Um, since I was doing community violence intervention work and, and got to be on a panel with some folks from Kansas City, I, about 12 years ago, no, not quite that much, about eight years ago, was in Kansas City um, working with the police department, went on a ride along with an officer. I'll, I'll just, his first name was Brian. Um, and he was part of a team that was doing focused deterrence, which is essentially a model in which you identify people already involved in violence, group violence, so members of a gang who are already shooting. And you intervene, and essentially the message from police and prosecutors is, all right, we're putting special attention on you and violence. So if anybody in this gang commits a violent act, the entire gang is going to be arrested. And they this is what we can charge you with. And on the flip side of that, they're offered social services and, and Brian was working with a young man and um, we got a call while we were in the car about a shooting and responded to the shooting and got to a gas station. It was a little after dusk. It was, it was springtime, I think, uh, or fall. One of those days when it's warm when the sun's out and gets cold pretty quickly. 
when the sun goes down. Um, and as Brian stopped the patrol car and started getting out, he said, that's my gun. And so he was the second car on the scene. I want to ride along, you wait with the car if something like this happens. Um, so I was dealing from a distance, but Brian went to render aid with the other officer. After two or three minutes, the ambulance got there. Ambulance paramedics went up to him and started doing chest compressions. So that's never a good sign. And uh, so we had responded to a shooting call and after the ambulance left, we were at a homicide scene. Hmm. And the, the cascading levels of trauma are difficult to get across and understand. This was a high violence neighborhood. There were people who just happened to be at the gas station getting gas and then had to stay there for hours because of what they saw. There was a, a young mother, again, it was like a warm day, but then it got cold quickly. Young mother in shorts and a tank top with her baby. That was a diaper and a t-shirt and it was chilly and she had to stay there for hours. Um, family and friends started to arrive at the gas station because of what they heard happening. And there was, even in a city like Kansas City, which has dozens, I think it's between 100 and 150 homicides in a typical year, no city infrastructure to deal with the trauma associated by everybody there. There's a organization called Mothers in Charge, founded by mothers who lost children to violence. And they come to the scene, started in Philadelphia, a chapter up in Kansas City. They come to the scene and they help explain to the family what happens now. And as bad as that was for everybody on the scene, it took me of weeks to get over um, for Brian that was the day ending in Y in the time we got there he saw weeks and months of work with the young man who was shot evaporate into the ether as he passed away and he may have had to do the same thing three days later or ten days later but it's, it's what we ask of officers. We, we call them heroes <laughs> because they're doing the things that we won't do ourselves and don't even want to hear about. Um, and, and so that's a big part. Yeah. yeah, especially when you're, you know, you said something earlier about people who commit violence were the victims of violence. And if we have police, I mean, they're human beings. And if they are, you know, collateral damage to violence, that's just going to beget violence, right? That's what, that's what I'm, is that a takeaway? Is that a uh, fair takeaway? If we only look to punish, yeah. If yeah. we don't look to intervene in other ways. Um, one of the amazing things, um, about being in St. Louis last week and meeting with these um, community violence intervention professionals is how many of them have been on the backside of a gun. Um, the Department of Justice official who was leading the effort, Eddie Bocanegra, 
Um, I believe he killed a man. Yes, he killed a man. And uh, he was in a gang as a teenager in Chicago. Ended up getting out um, and essentially wanted to make up for what he had done and create a new way of dealing with violence in the city of Chicago and formed an organization called Ready and has spent his life working to make sure that other people weren't involved in the situation he was involved in. And, and I could list, you know, 10 or a dozen people just like that who are doing the work. And, and we really need to start thinking of a, a comprehensive way to address problems like this and not just violence, right? But, but things like theft and burglary and, and just generally, I do a lot of work with crime prevention through environmental design. Most of what we're trying to deal with is things that make people feel unsafe or aren't necessarily illegal. Mm. So just the feeling of safety. Yeah. Oh, but back to the question, like, is it inevitable that police will use violence? Not to that extent, no. Um, when you become a police officer, you become acculturated in police culture. Um, so I think regardless of race, there's a lot of influences that are going to drive you to adopt the norms of your department. And so it's very important that the department is managed well and that there is oversight. And, you know, I think we have to recognize, like the founders did, that policing is an inherently conservative and reactionary in that um, they react to things, right? Police show up after somebody's called, after something has already happened. Inherently conservative organizations, if you think about any kind of progressive movement over the past 150 years, or, you know, police will point, or people will point to the origins of policing and slave patrols. I'm not sure. Personally, I haven't done a lot of research in that, so I'm not sure how important that was to creating policing organization. But police agencies have been used to uh, oppose the labor movement, women's suffrage, the civil rights movement, um, LGBTQIA rights, um, thinking about Stonewall. So they're inherently conservative and it takes a vigilant government and a vigilant population to make sure that they act in a way that's consistent with what we believe in. Yeah, and I would think visionary leadership, you had mentioned the lack of, of national leadership on the national level, but I would think uh, a commitment to um, community policing at, at the least and uh, a vision for what a partnership between neighborhoods, as you were saying, and, and a police force and a municipality uh, could bring to that. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, I'll say yes, right? The community policing part is difficult because um, I think there's a lack of understanding of what it should be. And mm -hmm. again, it's around that citizenship and making city residents and communities co-creators in terms of what they view as priorities around safety and also having to take part in creating that safety. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just saying, here's what we want, you guys do do it, whatever it takes. Right. And 
last thing. Okay. So, nope. Nope. I uh, gotta talk about guns in guns in this country. Oh, right. Yeah. So there's 330 million people, 360, 370 million guns in private possession, which means city of Rockville with 70,000 people. I mean, even if there are somewhat lower rates of gun ownership here, there's 50,000 guns in houses in Rockville, and that impacts how police interact with people when they come to the door after getting a call that somebody may be in danger. Um, Absolutely. It makes things less safe for everybody, including police officers, and especially police officers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other show. <laughs> I have thoughts on that. Um, all right. We should probably get to the topic at hand, which is we are going to, right now, marijuana is decriminalized and medical marijuana is legal. And we touched on that in a, as an access to care issue last time, just barely. It got mentioned last time. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's open up with this, with this scenario. It's June and a family is hosting their five-year-old's birthday party in their backyard. You've got a backyard full of kindergartners and their next door neighbor to also have a party and they are smoking pot in the backyard and the five-year-olds are wondering what that smell is and it's awkward and difficult what do we do how do we be good neighbors to each other how do we how do we be a good community and good neighbors while we make this transition yeah so I think that's that's a <clears throat> the question kind of answers itself how do we be good neighbors um, because this is in my perspective, the main types of problems that we're going to have from legalized weed um, in that we have not developed social norms around how it should be used and, and what are appropriate ways. Instead, we've created this artificial environment through prohibition where um, in, in many ways, um, pots serves as a paragon of counterculture, right? It, it can't be used in a bad way. I think certainly not. that's not how everybody views it, but I do think there's a significant subset of users who view it like the wonder drug and don't recognize, for example, the dangers of smoking and driving. Mm. Um, and really we, it reminds me of talking to my teenage daughters about smoking pot um, and how they should approach it. Frankly, alcohol has done a lot more damage in my family than marijuana ever will. So I, I wasn't too upset with the idea that they might be smoking. But I tried to make the point pretty plainly and clearly like, Getting high every day is as bad as getting drunk every day, right? And, and I don't think we've had enough of that conversations, enough of that large conversations socially about what's acceptable use and where's acceptable use and, you know, you don't drink before noon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a pretty, pretty common belief many of us have. It's probably a good idea to do a lot of morning, bad idea to do a lot of morning drinks every single day. And uh, so we need to work that out. And then, you know, the, the kind of hypothetical, I know Jamie loves this. He's a lawyer. I like hypotheticals, right? 
you know, what are you going to do? You're going to ask the neighbor. Just like if you were having your kid's party and somebody dropped off a kid, a bunch of crap would show up. Yeah. Right. Um, many of the things we're going to see as issues we do deal with and have been dealing with with alcohol use and, and other types of things like smoking cigarettes. So, um, yeah, it's it's not we have spent 70, 80 years creating this in, in bar, artificial environment of prohibition. And it's going to take a minute to, to figure out how we want to deal with things. So do we need policies, social infrastructure, ordinances, what do we, the city, does our mayor and council need to pass an ordinance about this or a set of ordinances? Well, I think probably we have plenty of laws on the books that can be used in some way. And I think an ordinance to prohibit the use of marijuana in your backyard would probably violate Maryland law. So I don't see in that situation how that would help. The, the one area in which I think probably the law is not ready to deal with some of the issues from marijuana use is just in driving while high because there's no, that I'm aware of, um, there's no testing regimen that's readily accessible to us to determine if somebody is, you know, driving with too high levels of THC or whatever. And, and you know, because marijuana was a Schedule One drug and we couldn't even do research on it for so long, <laughs> There's so much we don't know about it and, and the interactive effects and the psychopharmacological properties of it that, you know, I, I wonder if we even had a test, would it be the right test? Right. So somebody, so Rock Hill police officer pulls somebody over. <coughs> Are, something's wrong. They think they're high. Mm -hmm. There's nothing they can really do other than ask. Have you been smoking marijuana? Well, in order to pull them over, there has to be something happening. Maybe they're weaving, right? In and out, you know, between lanes or something. And and there are statutes on the book that can, you know, be applied. For example, for for driving in a dangerous manner, you know, illegally changing lanes. If a police officer <laughs> sees a problem, especially with driving and has enough um, probable cause to pull you over, they can find a way to write you a ticket, almost certainly. So I, I think the laws are in place. It, they may not be the ideal ones, um, but again, I think we're gonna be far more successful socially figuring out what we think are acceptable uses. And um, one of the things that I hope to get accomplished at the Community Policing Advisory Board is, is for our board to send a letter to the state legislatures next week, yeah, next week, um, requesting that money from the tax revenue for marijuana be spent on a large-scale public education effort. And for those of us who were around in the 80s and maybe early 90s are remembering mad and sad and uh, the, the organizations devoted to reducing not eliminating reducing drunk driving right 
um, what we saw was an incredible change in public perceptions about what was acceptable and informal social controls that said to us as a society, like, this this isn't cool, right? <laughs> right. Um, like, you know, in many places, before that public education effort, you know, drunk driving was, ha, 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 do you see how wasted I was, right? And right. now if you said that and talked about your driving, people would look at you like you killed babies or puppies. Right. puppies or wanted to kill babies like it's not cool and and we decided it was not cool so again like we can look to make this change smooth but it's probably going to be a little bumpy i actually don't think it's going to be incredibly bumpy because and let's face it people want to use pot now use pot now right it seems like nonprofit efforts like mad were much more successful when it came to drunk driving than the war on drugs by the government was on reducing drug use and violence around drug trafficking. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, no lies detected. Uh, <clears throat> I will say that, you know, my viewpoint is that um, our drug policy has been a complete and utter failure. Like, well, big surprise, prohibition doesn't work. Like, didn't we learn that lesson? And us, we use drugs at a much higher rate than almost any country on earth, despite trillions and trillions of dollars being spent to make that hard and to punish people for it, right? It, it hasn't had an impact on Americans using drugs. What it has done is created this underground economy where no taxes are paid, um, conflicts are handled informally, i.e. with a gun. Um, it has corrupted our law enforcement agencies. It has corrupted um, governments all over Latin America. It has created like these you know if you think about Urban Contra mm -hmm. right and the US government essentially brokering drug sales to pay for arms illegally or even more you know currently the American public was one of the main funders of the Taliban in recent years right. because they controlled opium production in Afghanistan and yeah, so it's failed uh, by almost any measure and, you know, created these incredibly big problems that are gonna take decades to solve. I have a sister-in-law who's from Honduras, um, which is, you know, totally controlled by the drug industry. Um, Deepa, my wife, you mentioned she's from Suriname originally. The president's former president's son is in jail in the U.S. for um, trafficking drugs. Like mm. nobody's going to ignore the billions and billions of dollars there for the taking every year because we want to get high. 
Mm. And when you compare like the amount of for enforcement and to efforts to get people to use less or not at all or a little less um, it, it just pales in comparison and I think is uh, shows some really backwards priorities yeah yeah agreed so if um, if nonprofit efforts work to reduce things like drinking and driving and, and community-based efforts what can we do here? You, you work on environmental design projects to create healthier, safer communities. So what are some things we could do? Is there some variety of signage? Is there some kind of local, like what, what would you recommend the city council do? Or just, just residents, like maybe, you know, they have these community grants. What if Twinbrook and East Rockville and Lincoln Park apply for a community grant? I'm just talking about the east side of the highway or the pike. What if we wanted to get a community-based grant for something to put in our parks or, or in our neighborhoods? What would, what would you recommend? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of cheating here and referencing a question Andrea asked about signage and stuff. Yes, I am. I'm bringing Andrea's very good question back up. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to engage people in discussions and thought about what Rockville looks like in six months in a year. Um, for all kinds of things, but even around um, pot use and and to really engage people in that conversation, you need to find things that are engaging, right? So there may be, you know, I, I walk my dogs on, on the path at Rockcrest Park and often smell weed in the air, sometimes very strongly, sometimes not so much. But um, if we put a black and white sign that says, you know, Marijuana use is illegal. No, nobody reads those things. The only time you read the like block lettering, black and white sign when you go to a park or something is if you're looking to know like what time does this park close? What is the name of this park? Right. Otherwise, it's just in the background and you don't pay attention. So, I think um, we have to be engaging and humorous, maybe, in how we get messages across. Use art. Um, try and create like public senses of what is cool like you can imagine something like a public ad campaign that where somebody's smoking or an animal smoking pot is a skunk right because it smells skunky don't be a skunk something mm -hmm. like that um, something that people actually pay attention to and gets the message across and allows us to engage in conversation like there's a lot about pot smoking that I think it's inappropriate in many places and at many times and we haven't been able to have discussions around that, so let's start creating discussions. Um, it, it does feel strange to talk about it as if it's a normal thing. Like it's not a, talking about it without shame and without any kind of uh, sense that you're talking about something illicit, that's going to be hard, especially for those of us who are victims of Nancy Reagan's war on drugs from the 1980s. Um, yeah, um, I suppose, right? I think probably our age works against us in this. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not, we haven't had public discussions about it, but we've created these systems that allow, we, we have multiple systems, right, for dealing with it. The, the whole um, medical marijuana issue to me is like, like I'm, I don't doubt that there are medical, good medical uses for marijuana. 
and the chemicals found in it. But to me, the medical marijuana system is just a system to give middle class people a get out of jail free card. card. If, if it, you can, yeah. I mean, doctors are putting signs on the side of the road saying, get your prescription and you pay the state for your license and all of a sudden you have, if not an ironclad excuse, a pretty good defense against ever being penalized for it. And um, the people who can't afford that or don't have that access to the medical system are gonna be left out. Yeah, if it, if it really does work, like, it, like people say it does, then it becomes an access to care issue with people who need the care and need the, or the palliative care being left out of that system. Um, it's funny, you know. I I was I was a good kid. I didn't I didn't do drugs. I don't like putting a bunch of. I'm seeing you're drinking a bourbon and ginger ale, but I don't I don't drink a lot. I don't. I'm I'm drinking chai tea. You're being very good to me. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was one of those kids who felt like threatened by Nancy Reagan. You know what I mean? The whole war on drugs thing. I was the I was the kid that felt terrible about it, even though I wasn't engaging in it and. So it, it is, I think there is a, at least several generations of shame inappropriately placed on, on Americans that we're going to have to, you know, figure out how to talk about and get through. Yeah, I, and I think we will, right? Yeah, because we will. I believe in Huckabillies, is that what yes. we're called? Yes, I, I have heard us called that. Okay, yeah. and I believe in Americans, like we'll figure this out. Yeah. And, and the worst, what I hope we don't do is try and... You know, go back to the old patterns of somebody's using this in a way I don't like. My default is going to be to call the cops, right? Right. And to have somebody else deal with it instead of looking for ways to like have this discussion and engage my neighbors. And you know, that doesn't mean in every moment that you need to go out and say, "Well, I really don't like what you're doing here," right? Um, because yeah, there's discomfort with that. But um, find trying to find ways to broach the topic and, and have discussions and not just say, well, I'm going to call 911. Right, right. I mean, the point is for fewer calls to the police, right? If it's legal, one would think that it would ease the burden on our police department to deal and allow them to deal with violent crimes and theft and things like that rather than calling each other in for smoking marijuana. Well, and... Um, we did get somewhat of a preview on the Community Policing Advisory Board from how the police department intends to deal with public use issues, and that's primarily through education. So the plan as of now is that if they get a call for people using smoking pot in public places, they're not planning on writing citations. Mm. Um, they're planning on having conversations um, and seeing if they can Good. stop the activity that way. And, you know, we're still a fairly small town if somebody is smoking pot in the same park on a daily basis the officers in the police department will figure that out pretty quickly and, and realize if the conversations are not working do they try to change their approach a little bit yeah yeah um okay here's another community issue or, or what might be a community issue um we know that laws about marijuana affect disproportionately affect people of color and affect men 
even though I think studies have shown that women smoke as much pot as men do, but men are the ones who go to jail for it. Um, so we're going to have, I know that records are going to be expunged, right? People's records will be expunged, that kind of thing. But when you go to jail, you miss out on potentially years of income, years of career advancement, years of education. Is there something that we can and should do for our neighbors? Is there something that the city could put in place to help our neighbors who have who have had to experience this? Help with help make up for these lost opportunities. Well, <clears throat> so for people who've been involved in the criminal justice system, especially people coming out of jail or prison, you know, the three keys to staying out are can you restore your pro-social ties, so family ties, with the people who are going to help you lead a crime-free life. Um, can you get a job? And can you get housing? And, and the housing part can be especially tricky. They, many of the housing policies develop for people with lower incomes, specifically exclude people with criminal records. Um, but, you know, cheaper housing is going to help those people. Um, if there can be incentives for employers to hire people with a record, that will be helpful. But not, but it, it, it won't be a panacea, right? Like the, you may be familiar with the Ban the Box initiatives, which several states passed laws that prohibited lawyer, uh, employers from asking if applicants had a prior criminal record. And what the studies have found is that for black men in places where the box has been banned. Employers assume they've been involved with the criminal justice system mm. rather than asking. So, and and you're absolutely right. <laughs> like any laws that are passed to address the use of drugs are going to hit communities of color worse because research is very consistent to show systemic racism in the criminal justice field, in the public health field, in the education field, like everything we got. And we know, for example, that blacks and whites use drugs at the same amount. And blacks, I think, are five times as likely to be imprisoned mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> on drug crimes. Um, my old professor and mentor did a study of the Terry Stops the Stop and Frisk in New York City, found that black and Hispanic men were stopped five times as often for a stop and frisk and found to be carrying contraband one-fifth as often as white people were stopped. Who were stopped. So, and you know, why would we expect any different, right? Because, you know, 1619 Project, thank you. I get to remember 1619. From 1619 till, what, 1965, 
most of our systems of government were designed explicitly to support racist policies and types. And then in the 60s and 70s, what? We just said, oh, we don't want them to work that way anymore, so they're not going to work that way. Right? And this goes back to the point I made before about police departments who don't explicitly and consistently look at issues of equity in their data. Right? We just decided, well, we're not going to be what we have been for 300 years. It's just we, we intend to be different, so everything will be good now. And it, it's just not that easy. Right. Right. It's not a switch you can flip. Uh, the statistic I read from the Cato Institute report said that 94% of arrests made for marijuana in New York are of blacks and Latinos. Even the research, and, and I'm just reading a little, um, a line from that report, even though research indicates there is no significant difference in pot usage among races. Oh, and I'm sorry, that's the Brookings Institute. That's not the Cato Institute report. Right, and that, that goes back to the idea that police are an organization for social control, right? And if we don't have oversight of how they're working and what they're doing, then they, they default to little c conservative positions. Yeah. yeah. So how do we support our officers through this? How do we, what is the, and I'm, I'm sure that's a question we should probably ask Chief Brito too, is what support do they need through this? But it sounds like though, if you guys on the Community Policing Advisory Board have talked to him and it's going to be an education initiative, at least at first, that sounds like he's, he's that's a good thing, I think. I think that's, that's a positive thing. Yeah, positive way to approach it. Um. Well, I think the most important thing we can do is take on our responsibility as a citizenry to develop consensus amongst ourselves and not default to especially calling police whenever we see something we don't like happening and doing that over and over again. If a police officer comes to a scene where a call has been made they have to take some actions because they're there. They have to ask for ID. Um, and this, that has become like ironclad. Um, I know there was a docu-series, docu-drama on Jeffrey Dahmer recently mm -hmm. on Netflix. Well, one of the incidents that allowed Jeffrey Dahmer to kill many more people than he otherwise would have was when police officers showed up and there was a young black man bleeding profusely and naked outside of either his building or his apartment, but not inside the apartment. And... If I got my story straight, Jeffrey Dahmer had tried to drill a hole in his head with an electric drill. And this minor child was asking for help. And the two police officers who were at the scene decided it was just a spat between gay lovers and that they would let Jeffrey Dahmer take care of the spat. 
Griffin's mother, who was later killed. And so incidents like these, I mean, if you're a police officer and you're showing up to a call on a scene, you have to establish, are all the people here safe? Is the person I'm being called on, do they have a warrant on them? Who are they? Um, and that can naturally lead to um, conflict in many cases. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times these calls come and it's it's unjust that people have to be examined and interviewed by the police when they're just out in the park doing their thing. So if someone's bleeding from the head, call the police. If not, don't be a Karen. Try not to be a Karen. Fair takeaway from what you And if you are a Karen, try to find ways where you don't have to be one of them, unless that is your name. Right. Only be a Karen if your parents named you Karen. Um. Yeah, I think that's going to be the hard part. That that really is. It is, but you know that, and and it's not necessarily a conversation you're going to want to have to people. But. As you get to know people on your street, for example, like you know the people who are willing to take on that role. Like we were joking in the last session, take one, um, that I was the second guest after Marissa was Larry. Right. And you had made it halfway down Midway Avenue. So I had about <laughs> 30 more years of this podcast before you got through Rockville. Right. Um, I, I if I didn't feel comfortable talking to somebody in the area who I knew or had seen around, I would certainly feel comfortable going to Marissa's house and saying, "Hey, what do you know about this person? Can you say something to?" Right, right. right. Um, and most of us on our streets, if we get to know the people there, um, we have people like that. And and pitch for you all as listeners. Like, get to know the people on your street. I'll try and have a barbecue or something at least once a year. And um, just to get to know my neighbors and meet them in a like social setting and allow for more than just hi. I think that's really important. More yeah. than just saying hi, not being hi. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, so the past two falls, we've had a Midway Avenue chili cook-off. Very nice. Yes. Very nice. Everybody wins. We don't pick a winner. It's hard to, you know, the thing about chili cook-offs is that um, almost everyone loses, and, and yet we're all winners because we've just had like six pints of chili. Yeah, that's why I don't bother trying to yeah, call I mean, a winner. It, it's, yeah, there's, everybody wins at a chili cook-off. Um, you know, that's a good point about the neighbors. I wonder if uh, facilitated conversations at the civic association meetings, you know, that might be a good thing to have prior to July 1st is talking to uh, the civics. I think that would be great. I think a challenge that all local government is facing right now is how do we, how do we facilitate that neighbor to neighbor interaction that we have lost yeah. for so many reasons. Um, and we have been through a couple of decades now of city government primarily. I am not running for city council, I want to make it clear. Um, That's unfortunate. We have, like, we have been through this multi-decade experience of viewing the citizenry as customers to be served, 
and I think we need to start taking it the other way and and creating the challenge of how, how do you take part in the civic and social life in your community um, and what is the infrastructure that creates that we were in St. Louis this this whole concept of community violence intervention and prevention people talked a lot about infrastructure and and a lot of these programs they've taken place for decades now shown a lot of success but they they are grant programs that run for a little while and then disappear and now people are putting these programs in departments of health but um, one thing we're still searching for is like how do you embed that how do how do you create the structure, infrastructure for it? And like, what positions does it have to be? In my work, we think very strongly that there needs to be like a neighborhood-based safety coordinator, though it certainly doesn't have to be just about safety, but there's somebody who convenes residents and partners in place. And their whole job is about that convening. Um, so yeah, get involved. Say hi to people. It can be especially hard in Rockville because, like, we're way educated here. Um, what's the proportion of people with a graduate degree in Rockville? It's getting close to fifty percent. It's pretty high. Yeah. What and and normally across the country, it's like ten percent. Right. And, but it, which gives us, in many cases, jobs that don't require us to interact with people. Yeah. Um, and also because we're in a government center, like this is a conversation I've had with Deepa and again, apologies for those who struggled through the first episode, because we're on take two. Um, this will be a repeat of what you heard. She, she, um, lived in The Hague in the Netherlands before coming out to here. And that is of course the seat of government of the Netherlands. It is not the capital, I've been informed after talking about take one. Um, the capital is Amsterdam, but the government is in The Hague. And so you have the bureaucracies and, and everybody who supports those, like here in DC, and people are very tied into kind of systems of power here. Um, and we tend to be a conventional lot we like incremental change. Like if we could just learn a little more, we could do this better. We like our studies. If we could just learn a little more about how to legalize pot, I think that's probably why we're so far behind the curve on marijuana legalization because there's like a conventionality here. And like if we could just learn how other people did it, we'd make it a little better. Despite being like really politically liberal. So there's, to me, there's an incongruity there. You worked it. That's the word of the day. I worked, worked it, it in. in. There's an incongruity there in the conventionality and the liberal political goals. Like that's on us. So yeah, we got to figure it out. We'll figure it out and do that. Sometimes we we need to be the leaders and the innovators, not the people looking for the research of other people who've done it, so that we can copy it. You know, I, that, that is one of my frustrations is we want to study it, study it, study it, hire a consultant, study it some more, talk about it a whole bunch in a bunch of redundant public hearings, 
sometimes it's like maybe we should just uh, maybe we should just innovate this. Yeah, maybe we should lead on it. Let's lead on this. Let's just build protected bike lanes. Right. Let's just do that. Let's put in some green roofs. Let's just you know what? Close some prisons down. Yeah. Yes, yeah. they're not making people better. Let's just put a restorative justice center. Let's just have it. Why shouldn't it be us? We should be so proud to have it. Mm-hmm. And school buses. Actually, though, yeah. So, uh, well, shout out. Total support for the, what's it called? I don't know its official name, but it's a restorative justice center yeah. over on Seven Locks. So, the restorative justice part, I'm totally on board with. Um, I think it has to be there. You have to make it easy for the police officers who are right. going to be... Um, taking the people for um, assessment and if it's near the booking center they're going to take them there but I think my understanding is that there's it's also going to be essentially the detox center for people in crisis throughout the county Uh, that's not so great especially uh, so for anybody there I think it's not a complete system unless the county provides for transportation needs to get people home back to their job um, if you're thinking about trauma-informed care, taking somebody 20 miles across Montgomery County and just dropping them off oh, is, yeah. no. is not trauma-informed at all. Right. Um, so it's you know it's good as as an alternative to being arrested, but if that's your detox place, that is the farthest thing from trauma-informed practices. Yeah. Then you're just kind of. What else can we stick here? Um, so what what does Rockville get right? What do we do right? So, um, well, if we want to stay on the topic for a moment of the police, I, I'm a big fan of Chief Rita. Me too. Um, yeah, he's, he's absolutely got his heart in the right place to, for this work. He's he's focused on equity. He's focused on creating a diverse police department one that keeps its officers to high standards but also meets the needs of officers oh what can we do for police officers make them feel like part of the community Mm -hmm. as much as we can and not put them in positions that they don't need to be in um except that some issues are ours and not put everything on them um i do wish that our police department and our city and almost any police department were a lot more advanced in using analytics and looking at what their what the end product of their policies are uh, but it, it's nobody in the field and almost nobody in the government is good at doing that so that's that's more wishful thinking for me um, what do we do as a city that's right I mean we get the right people here. We get amazing people of all types here. Um, I was so happy my kids went to Richard Montgomery, go Rockets, and went to this amazing school that was full of amazing students and, and prepared them for life because they met all types of students from all types of backgrounds and, and got to interact with them and, and learn from them. Just be friends with them. Um, we certainly are doing pretty well with food. We're gonna get to that. We're gonna yeah. make sure we're gonna definitely redo that part because that was my favorite part. It was a good part. Um, 
Yeah, I, I hope that as we move forward, I'm confident that as we move forward, we'll find better ways to integrate like younger residents who are moving here with the transit-oriented development and not just stick them all boxes on Rockville Pike, but provide the parks and, and other types of things they need and change our infrastructure to make it you know, easier for people to like have a really positive, good life without having to drive everyone in a car. I was at Carmen's yesterday. Shout out to Carmen's. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't we all love to have a neighborhood institution like that in our neighborhood mm -hmm. instead of having to drive to a state road? Yeah. So. Yeah. I would say about Chief Brito, all that add that his son is an LSU Tiger. Go Tigers. And G-E-A-U-X. That's right, since Matt and I both uh, spent time in Louisiana. How about that Tulane football team this year? Yeah. That was the Cotton Bowl. That was yeah. the Cotton Bowl. Something like that. Beat USC. That was a big comeback. Yeah, yeah. They've been very bad for a very long time. Yes. So I don't want to miss out on that. My no, no. daughter and many of her friends from this area went to Tulane. Nice. Actually drove me to move down there. Um, after raising two kids in the Houston area, I just needed to get out a little bit. Yep. And so lived there. It's a good place to do it. Three and a half years. It's always good to get a reality check about how unimportant you are in the DMV when you're doing federal work. Yeah. Most yeah. people don't think about it very much. Why should they? <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, and uh, about the, the schools. You know, my son went to Rockville High School. We had an amazing experience there. Same deal, right? All kinds of people from all over the world. When I was, um, I worked in education when we lived in Texas. And I did my last year in a cubby running data, just writing queries and writing test assessment items and all kinds of things that were, um, made me caused me to go out and get a national certification, true story, national certification in home economics and threatened to be a home ec teacher and leave. Cooking or selling? All of it, all of it. I made a 100 on the test. I'm quite crafty. Uh, so I had been teaching geography and history and, and moved into data analysis and assessments. And anyway, so I, uh, Dave, my husband said, hey, I've got an opportunity to move to the D.C. area. He's from Philadelphia. Wanted to come back to the Mid-Atlantic. I said, sure, let's take a look. And so I start just pulling data from Montgomery County Public Schools. And Rockville was a little bit better, but both Rockville and RM, when you looked at their ESL data, and obviously my son is, is a native English speaker, but it's teachers like ESL teachers and, and ESL programs where you really see the quality of the faculty and, and the care and the devotion that administration is putting into their schools. So I'm looking at special programs because if they care about those, then they probably care about everybody else too. And that gap, right, that how, how much gain did an ESL student make in a year? And a lot of times in schools, you'll see, well, you know, it's a 10-month school year or a nine-month school year, and they made three months of progress or seven or eight months of progress. Well, at Rockville High School, they were making like 13 months of progress 
in a nine and a half or ten month school year. And RM wasn't quite, and this is 10 years ago. This is, this is not recent. So nobody, don't do your own research. Don't, don't quote me on these right now. And so I just told Dave, you know, we need to suck it up and, and buy in one of these neighborhoods. You know, coming from Texas where houses were so much cheaper 10 years ago than they were up here. It was a tough, that was tough um, to make it work. But we did. And, and, it's because people care, right? Education's a priority. Uh, I think that's something that Rockville, the whole area, but especially Rockville, gets really right, is that education's important. Talking to people is important. The conversation is important. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And proud graduate of Maryland Public Schools in Anne Arundel County. It's, I'm, I'm always a little tickled when People I know say they're interested in moving to the area and start comparing one Montgomery County school to another or Montgomery County schools to Howard County schools. A, you're the biggest influence on your child's education. Right. B, like top state education system in the country. We talked about some of the best school systems there are for public school students. Right. That's another conversation, but like looking at marginal differences between the two. No, like pick your place, go to the school. It's going to be a great resource. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Trying to think it well today. I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't eat anywhere local today. We actually took the motorcycles out to Coolsville and went to locals farm market. it was great. Have you been there? No. It's quite good. It's a nice little drive out to Coolsville. But I feel bad because we are talking about Rockville food and I left Rockville to eat today. I got you covered. All right. Where should I have gone to lunch today instead of, of uh, locals? Well, to be reflective about lunches or restaurants. <laughs> and again, apologies for those who suffered through the quiet version of this. Um, I think during COVID, like, I really figured out what places were important to me. And um, so I want to give a shout out to Kumaja, mm-hmm. not in my favorite place. Kumaja is a lunch home, but the East Dumpling House. You know what? Dave and I had lunch there last week. Yeah. Yeah. I had takeout Friday. Did you? What'd you get? He got two different kinds of soup and shared, both delicious. Okay. I got the lamb and carrot dumplings, handmade, and um, cumin beef. How is the cumin beef this good? I haven't had that one. It's good. It's spicy. I like so spicy. If you like heat. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, Vignola Gourmet, which uh, honorarily Rockville is off Boiling Brook. So not technically in the school, but used to be where the current town square is. That's Rockville adjacent. Has a Rockville history. It got moved to build Rockville Town Square. Yeah. So. What do they have at Vignola? What should we eat there? It's just an beef? Italian deli, so they have like... Um, Good porchetta. Mm-hmm. I like meatball subs. They have a freezer stock with like entrees and stuff if you mm. want to get something uh, to do quick during the week. Um, also, shout out to Bonon Nam, which is kind of like my Wednesday night thing. I love Bonon Nam. And Bombay Bistro has their new menu. It's really good. It doesn't 
nice new stuff on there. They they dip the little butt their back and they have a beautiful patio that hopefully sticks around. I just wish they'd bring lunch back. Yeah. I wish they'd bring back lunch. If we go there enough. Yeah, maybe so. And Maryland Pride, this is not in Rockville, but um, Ecuban in Baltimore. Okay. Uh, It's a takeout bun, like bow bun. It's a takeout bun place, and the chef and co-owner was nominated for a James Beard Award. It's got the amazing, most amazing bun sandwiches, and uh, vegetarian friendly, kind of vegan friendly, I think. Um, side dishes and stuff, fried tofu, and tempura fried broccoli bites. Um, they now have three locations. But one thing that just like made me love Ekaben was they got a tweet about a year and a half ago, I think, from a customer who asked for the recipe for their tempura fried broccoli because that customer's friend in New Hampshire loved it so much, but um, she had cancer and was about to go in hospice, so they wanted to go make it for the woman. And the owners of Becca then said, we'll drive up and make it for her. Oh my goodness. And so. Oh wow. Yeah, so wow. go to go to the Hamden Ekaben, get it, and um, it's takeout, so take it to Peabody Heights Brewery. That's a good thing. Um, bakeries in the area, I'm kind of categorized. Yeah. La Bohemia, over by Amalfi Coast. That's yeah. really good. And, and Sunday morning bake house, bake house in Pike and Rose. Yeah. I think we're supposed to hate Pike and Rose, but it's a really good bake house that started at the farmer's market stand. I love that one. And Jamie loves, uh, and his wife love La Bohemia. Yeah. They've, I, they've, I've sent them from over our house one time. It's really good. I haven't been there personally, but that's yeah. But what uh, I really what we don't get right is ah, we have a high end coffee shop. The closest for me is Nagai in Silver Spring, which is a coffee roastery, and they open Saturday and Sunday mornings. But I know I, I got tut tutted a little bit last time. But like, if they weigh the coffee when it's in the porta filter, like I want a a slow slow progress. Espresso shop. That's really special. I see what you're saying. Like, you can get good coffee here, but not special coffee here. Yeah. If we're um, going to categorize. And so, really, really missing that in Rockville. Yeah, that is. Miss- I agree with that. Actually. Maybe I'll win the lottery and we'll have one. That would be nice. But so, my top three news places in Rockville uh, Bangkok Garden, over by Food Line. Mm-hmm. That's it's Thai Street Food. And they'll have some stuff that can be really challenging to the Western palate if you're not afraid to give it a try. And uh, CNC Manouche, which I went to yesterday. I love that place. Was in the top 50 new restaurants in America by Bon Appetit. Yep. Have you had the cardamom cold brew? They don't make it in the wintertime. I have not. Okay, as soon as it warms up, get the cardamom cold brew. But my... Son-in-law is from Sweden, but his parents are from Lebanon. They had to move during the winter. They're back there now. We went visited a year and a half ago. One of the highlights of the trip was in a bus going down to the beach. You know, the whole family, like, no lie, 25 members of the family being driven in a bus by the uncle. Um, And getting, having a car race up next to us, honking horns and waving hands and 
pulling over and all of a sudden out of the car that pulled us over like two dozen freshly made Manouche mm. from Tripoli. That was just amazing food. And then to have this show up here, what, about a year ago, year and a half ago, was just uh, incredibly lucky. It's amazing food and great stuff. They have a good backstory, too. Didn't the grandpa used to own the place and it was a chicken place? Yeah. Something like yeah, that. They've been, so they've been in the same physical space before. Mm-hmm. It was like a chicken takeout and then the, the sons or grandsons, yeah, also did the farmer's market thing. Yeah. And then we're able to land the lease. And uh, so because it's next to Carmen's, I got to have my, as a snack, manouche. I split a manouche and a chocolate chip. Wow. Good combination. But number one with a bullet is a taco truck. Shintli Taqueria. X-I-N-T-L-I. Amazing, amazing. Handmade. Corn masa tortillas. Mexican. Tacos. Not Tex-Mex. Not Tex-Mex. Which is its own authentic cuisine. It is. <laughs> but not authentically Mexican. It's not authentically. Kind of, sort of. It is authentic Norteño. Depends on what state you're from. It's true. Um, but it's it's just amazing. It's um, a mother and her daughter usually in there. The mother's from San Potosí and the daughter's from Mexico City. And like they're, they're doing some elevated stuff. They're vegetarian friendly. Um, I'm worried that they won't be accessible to me. I can walk in five minutes now. Yeah, it's right on Beers Mill, in this parking lot with the new laundromat next to the McDonald's. You should give it a try. Online ordering is very easy with them. Um, Shintley, so go there, try it. Um, they're going to be big and famous somewhere. I think before too long. Wouldn't it be nice if some of these restaurants bought in the towns from there? Yes, it would be so nice. So nice. Um, you know, Andrea tried it. I'm sorry she's not here tonight because she tried it and she could tell us her take on it. Um, Andrea found a Texas-style breakfast taco place for me in D.C. Got a crazy text. How like, far away is it? It's far away. But we had to, and it, it's not, a, frankly, it was not metro accessible. We actually drove. We don't usually drive any town. But, but a good breakfast taco is worth driving for. Yeah. Potatoes? Yeah, potato, egg, and cheese. Uh, but they have all of it. They have potato, egg, and cheese, bacon, egg, and cheese, bean, and cheese. Well, what I was told in Colorado was that the one where I think the breakfast tacos was that had potatoes. Mm. So, but that's, yeah. I guess, a Colorado. Maybe that's a Colorado. Maybe yeah. not a Texas. It's common in Texas, but not required. One place I like is the, um, is it, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. Is it Kim in? Or Ken M. Pie. Yes. Yeah. I like the Brussels sprout salad. It's got cashews. Have you had them? Have a Brussels sprout salad. It's good. I'll try it. Matt. Oh, wait. Books. Books. More. Oh, books. What are you reading? Um, Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. Mm -hmm. It's like the one book I've tried to read in the last year or two that is actually fun to read. And there's a book I have that I want to bring out. Um because of the way we closed the last show. And it's called Humankind by Dutch historian, it's in English though, Rutger Bregman. He made um, the news two, three years ago by going to Davos and saying, essentially telling the rich people in Davos, the problem with the world that we have now is you people won't pay your taxes. 
Um, but this um, this book, Humankind, is essentially a book that looks at the research about how people respond in times of crisis and trial, um, like during a pandemic. Um, and what's the, I should know this, but I'm getting a middle age to really get the proper names. The book about the children who get shipwrecked on a desert island and end up basically killing each other. Oh, uh, oh geez. No. This is the same thing. Yes, I do. I have the same problem. Those are almost the same age. It's uh, Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Thank you. Right? Lord of the Flies. Because, again, we talk about narratives, right? And, and we kind of buy into this negative, stereotypical narrative that, like, when things go to shit, um, people act self-interested and in a selfish manner. And, and what the evidence actually shows is quite the opposite. Like Louisiana and Texas, when there's a hurricane and the Cajun Navy comes to help. Right. Um, and what he's found, he actually found a recorded case of a group of boys who were shipwrecked on an island that what did they do? They helped each other yeah. until they were um, rescued. And so... He, the book is essentially a detailing of research and evidence that talks about like we support one another and humans are hardwired to help one another. And I think that's that's maybe a <clears throat> good point or a point I'd like to make before I leave. Forget this time. We're not doing a take two. We'll talk about something else next time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Glad to do that. But um, the importance of in how we think about each other and thinking about our commonalities both in marijuana legalization right like the people who may be 30 years younger than you mm -hmm. and not dress like you and smoking pot the way that you never would as a group they have a lot in common with you so let's treat each other like that let's try to find ways to treat each other with grace and kindness Trust is payback and trust. That is the perfect way to wrap this up, Matt. Thank you. And I will definitely check. We'll put a link to that book and these restaurants in the, in the show notes. Great. All right. Well, thank you. And just a quick note, um, Marin Council did pass those two extra seats. So, you know, it's a good year to run if you're going to run. Um, the next thing is the 16 and 17-year-olds. I think you uh, you get to you become a good citizen by exercising your citizenship muscle, and I am a, a fan. The way you get better at anything. Practice That's right. It. You practice it, and um, I know some pretty uh, dipshitty fifty-year-olds that probably shouldn't be allowed to vote. I don't know why we wouldn't let our sixteen and seventeen-year-olds vote. I I find kids are smarter and more sophisticated all the time. And I have a lot of hope. I think. Think about the future a little bit. Right, exactly. So hopefully that'll that'll roll out. That I know there's a big pushback against it. It's not a popular idea on Marion Council, but I know there's a lot of pretty passionate testimony at the last Marion Council meeting about that, and also districting and lots of other things to look forward to that we talked about with Melissa. Oh, and I, I would love to see yeah four districts and two at large. Yeah. Can yeah. Put in a plug. Would also like to see non-citizens allowed to vote. Yeah. I think the conversation with Marissa tended to focus on undocumented 
this is. We did focus on that a lot, yeah. Um, my wife is a Dutch citizen, um, has hesitation about becoming a U.S. citizen and how that might affect her Dutch citizenship. I have a friend who lives in there, not Rockville, but close by, and he works for an NGO, has two daughters who are born in this country, has been in this country for 30 plus years, not eligible to apply for permanent residency even because of this job status. But we have this conceit that there's dual priorities if you're a citizen of another country in a national election, which yeah, maybe there is, but the city is the place you live. Right. I don't see any reason why people who are committed to this place and just here um, should be, you know, sometimes for decades here. Right. Should be kept from voting because of where their passports are. Yeah, we were happy to take your money, you know, but you should, I just think, you should, if you live here, you should have a say in what goes on. If, especially if you're, you know, like Deepa, I mean, she lives here, this is her home, right? This is her home, she's happy here to vote. So those are all things to look forward to. And uh, I know you haven't met Deb, we're laying down, but we're going to talk to her next about some of our local environmental issues. Well, I look forward to it, and now I know what to look for. Hey, Rockville. All right. Thanks a bunch, Matt. It's great to talk to you.